And we'll be looking at pages 6 and 7, page 6 really, and then into page 7 in just a bit. Just want to remind you of some things that are coming up quickly. Next week, next Sunday afternoon at 2.30 at the Westfield Activity Center in Trenton. We've had a number of events there, so most of you know where that is. But uh, it is behind the Trenton Library on West Road. And we will have at 2.30 next Sunday afternoon our family meeting, congregational meeting. And that congregational meeting is is packed full of stuff for us to present to you. Uh, One is uh, a proposed budget for 2013. And that proposal is on the resource uh, table, has been for the last week or so. So if you haven't picked one up, we encourage you to do that so that you can review it prior to next week's meeting. That will expedite things. If you have any questions about it, if you contacted uh, our treasurer, Rich Carrico, this week, that would expedite things as well. Of course, you're, uh, you're invited to ask questions at the meeting itself also. But that's there. Also, uh, our third quarter report, you say third quarter, we just, we're ending the fourth quarter. But we've delayed this meeting uh, related to our ministry center and wanting to have as much information about our ministry center as possible. So we're actually presenting the third quarter financial report by next week, having uh, closed out the year here in the next couple days. We will also be able to give you information about the end of the year, fourth quarter as well. But we'll be voting on receiving the third quarter report. That's also available at the uh, Resource Center, so pick that up. And then we're also considering a name change. Most of you are aware of that. We've been talking about that uh, on and off for a year and a half. I did a series uh, a few months ago that took a couple of months, and a part of that was about reasons for that. And so that's a big consideration for our church And we're going to vote on that next week. And so we're encouraging everybody to come because we have some big items to to vote on and also to give you information about where we are with the Ministry Center project. So all of that stuff and a little bit more next week. So I encourage you to plan to be there. If you're not somebody who normally attends our family meetings, I encourage you to try to attend this particular family meeting. Uh, If you sometimes send one representative from the family, uh, which is understandable, especially if you have kids to watch. Uh, If you're able to make arrangements and both of you come, then I encourage you to do that. But certainly we understand if you're not able to. So everybody who can is encouraged to come. That's next Friday at uh, next Sunday at uh, 2.30, Westfield Activity Center. The month of January is a huge month for us in terms of trying to move into the ministry center. We've got a lot of tasks to do in order to make that happen, and and we're asking anybody who can help to do that. Brother Ken Rapp is going to head that up for us. Uh, You can contact him directly at his email address if you have that, or if you send to MC, ministry center MC, at communitybaptist.to, that forwards to Ken just let him know when you're available and what you're able to do, and he'll, he'll assign a task to you for that. Now, I've been joking with Ken. You know, Ken is a tough taskmaster. So he just, just warning you, when you get involved with Ken, he will crack the whip on you. So uh, he is, we call him the hammer, and he's the hammer for our MC, our ministry center. We're calling him MC Hammer. That's what we're all going to call him. <laughs> 
from, from here on out, all right? <coughs> Ken MC Hammer Rap is what we're going to call him. So he's going to do these, uh, uh, set up these tasks for us, and we're going to slide into home. A lot to be done, but we're confident we can get it done, and we're looking forward to our first service at the Ministry Center on February the, the 3rd. Men, men's fraternity starts uh, on Wednesday, January 16th, as Pastor Matt mentioned in the announcements in the first hour. January 16 and 23 and 30, those three Wednesdays that men's fraternity will meet at Patrick Henry Middle School because we won't have the ministry center ready. But then after those three weeks, the Wednesday uh, meetings will be at the ministry center from there on out on Wednesdays. Men's fraternity also meets on Friday mornings, Friday mornings at 6 a.m. at the Allen Park Community Center. That'll start that first uh, Friday of that first week, January 18th, and those Allen Park meetings will remain in Allen Park on Friday mornings throughout the entire 16 weeks of this installment. All right, Biblical Worldview uh, 101. And we have looked at the importance of worldview because a worldview is a way of looking at all of reality. And so the worldview that you have will shape how you see everything. Everybody has a worldview. Most people don't know that they have one because they have unconsciously absorbed it rather than consciously adopting it from Scripture. And that includes most Christians. It's my observation and experience that most Christians don't think about how they're supposed to think. They don't think about what they're supposed to think about, and they don't think about how they're supposed to think about it. And that relates to worldview. How am I supposed to see things? But we don't consciously think about that. And as a result, we just absorb the way we see things from our environment, from the culture at large, from our family, perhaps from the church community that we're in. And those may or may not be accurate. Certainly, the culture at large is not an accurate, giving you an accurate way of looking at the world. And so God has given us his book to express his view, his perspective on life. And we are to then use that book to adopt intentionally, consciously, our view of the world from Scripture rather than unconsciously absorbing it. That's what the introductory lesson was, was about. And then, beginning on page 3 in your notes, we saw that really all of history can be divided into kind of three categories, excuse me, page four. And I call these three categories orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And the idea is simply that God created the world and he gave an orientation to his world to his first creatures, Adam and Eve. And he has also given that orientation in writing, inscripturated to us in, in the Bible. And so orientation is about God is the creator, and who he is, who we are, and what he expects from us. That's orientation. But then disorientation is our failure to live up to what God expects from, from us. So disorientation is the entrance of sin. It is the fall. You could phrase it this way. It's, it's who we are and what's wrong with us. And the Bible teaches that there is something fatally wrong with us from a spiritual standpoint as, as humans. And so the orientation that God gave to his creatures now becomes disoriented. Uh, their, 
perspective becomes distorted. What was absolutely clear now is not so clear. And what was designed to be joyful and communion with one another and with God is now broken. So horizontal relationships are broken, vertical relationships are broken. That's a disorientation. And reorientation, thankfully, is the fact that God has not left us in this fallen state, but that God is actively working to reorient his world to his original design. And that's what the plan of history is about, centered upon Christ and centered upon the gospel, and we get to play a role in that. So if you wanted categories to just fit everything, your view of everything, everything fits into one of those three categories. Orientation, who God is, who we are, and what He expects from us. Disorientation, uh, the fall, sin. That's what our problem is. And then reorientation, that's, that's redemption. That's what God is doing to redeem, to, to correct, to buy back what has gone wrong in his originally good good world. And we get to play a role in that, so you could add a fourth category if you want, purpose. So you could call it creation and fall and redemption and purpose. Or orientation, disorientation, reorientation. But that will give you a a way to categorize everything in in life. And so we started out on page 4, top of page 4, section 1, orientation looking at the fact that God indeed is the Creator, and the Creator has given instructions and orientation to Himself, ourselves, and His world. And then on page 6 last week, we continued looking at the category of orientation, and the title of the lesson is Footnotes of of Creation. And that is, these are implications of the fact that God is the Creator. If God is the creator, then if we are to know why we are here, anything about him, he's the one who's going to have to tell us. And so there's the necessity of, of revelation, God telling us what, uh, who he is, who we are, and what his purpose is for us. And he has done that, thankfully, in Scripture. So we began to look at the nature of Scripture as God's word, and also, bottom of page 6, God's will. And we left off there. Scripture as an expression of God's will. And I said, as we ended last week, that there are two aspects of God's will, and if you don't get these straight, you'll be messed up. And a number of you had questions for me afterwards, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking further about God's sovereign will and God's, God's moral will. And the Bible teaches both of these. That, that everything that happens is under the control of our sovereign God. And there is nothing that happens that is outside of his plan and his control. Nothing. And so we saw Isaiah chapter 46, where God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the Lord. There is none like me. I make known the end from the very beginning. He says, I sermon, I summon a bird to, from the east to carry out my, my plan. A man in order to fulfill my purpose. What I have planned, that will I do. What I have purposed, that will I perform. And so God is saying, I'm sovereign. Nothing happens outside of my sovereign control. Jesus said it in, as we saw last week, Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. 
Verse 30 of Matthew 10, Jesus says, The very hairs of your head are numbered. And as I pointed out last week, we often read a verse like that and we just think that that means God is just a big computer. He can just store a lot of information. But it's more than that according to the context because the verse right before it, verse 29, says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not, not, not one of these relatively worthless birds, that's what Jesus is saying, Not one of them falls to the ground except it be by the will of your Father. And are you not more valuable than a sparrow? And the very hairs of your head are numbered. So a relatively worthless bird doesn't die outside the plan and sovereign will of God. And a hair doesn't fall from your head outside of the will and sovereign plan of God. So the Bible teaches God's sovereign will. But it also teaches his moral will. And his moral will is a reflection of his moral character. It's consistent with who he is. And he tells us what is consistent with his character, what he approves of and what he does not approve of because it's inconsistent with his character. He tells us that in Scripture. And I can know God's sovereign will only after the fact. And the only exception to that, anybody know what the exception to only knowing God's sovereign will after it happens? I mean, I don't know God's sovereign will for this afternoon or the next 10 minutes because I have no idea what I'm going to say. No, I'm kidding. But this afternoon or next week, but God certainly does. He has that planned, right? The only exception to not knowing until after the fact if, is if God reveals in predictive prophecy. And God has done that in some cases, right? And so we are told some things that are going to happen in the future in the book of Revelation, for instance. And there's going to be one who is going to be called the Antichrist. And there's, uh, there's going to be a battle at a place called Armageddon, Valley of Megiddo, uh, the Battle of Armageddon. The Bible predicts all that stuff. So I know that's going to happen. But I know it's going to happen because God has given us predictive prophecy. Outside of predictive prophecy, the only way I know God's sovereign plan is after the fact. But I know God's moral will by what he has approved and disapproved in Scripture. And so we looked at Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. So there are things that God has not made known. He knows them. He knows what his plan is. But I don't. And they're secret because he has not made them known. But these are given to us and to our children and to our children's children that we might obey them, says Deuteronomy 29, 29. And so God has revealed his moral will, what pleases him, what he desires, what's consistent with his character. Now that all then raises a question if you're awake and thinking. And a few of you ask it of me afterwards. Well then, there's God's sovereign will, and you said, Brown, last week, that you can't say just because something happened, that's what God desired to happen, because it may well be contrary to his moral will. And we should never say that something that's contrary to God's moral will is something that God wants. And yet many of us have taken God's sovereign will to mean everything that happens is good. 
And the truth is everything that happens ain't good. So it's part of God's sovereign will, but not necessarily part of his moral will. God allows things in his sovereign will that are contrary to his moral will. Wow. So, can you think of examples? Well, you know, Jesus was crucified. That was a murder. Executed by wicked people. That was a mur murder precipitated by a kangaroo trial. So injustice precipitated the injustice of the execution of Jesus. So all the stuff these people did is contrary to God's moral will. Thou shalt not murder. And yet it is clearly all part of his sovereign plan, correct? And you see this actually in Scripture. Take a look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Verse 27, I think. No. Verse 22. I have one page torn out of my Bible, and it's that one. And, and my dear mother who in the final years of her life, you know, she suffered from Alzheimer's and she lived with us for a period of time. And I'd just gotten this Bible when she started to, to live with us. And, you know, she didn't know what she was doing sometimes and she ripped this page out of, out of my Bible. So I've got this one ripped page and that's where we're looking at. So I'm going to read off of this torn sheet in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Peter says on the day of Pentecost, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Now let me stop there. God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This is, this is God's sovereign plan. This is what God intended to happen. But then Peter goes on, and you with the help of wicked men. And these guys are going, wicked? We're doing God's bidding. This is what God wanted. But you see, Peter's having none of that. If it's God's sovereign will, therefore it's his moral will. He still calls them wicked men. Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Or if you look at chapter 4, turn over to chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now we're going to read on, but again, just stop there. So... Some guilty characters, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders of Israel, the Romans, they all conspired together against Jesus. 
But then verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see this in the Old Testament a number of times. Habakkuk, three chapters. Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk says to the people of Israel, because of your wickedness, you have violated the covenant that God has made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, you'll read the terms of that covenant where God says, if you obey, these are the blessings that will follow. If you disobey, these are the curses that will follow. So that's a conditional covenant. The blessings are conditioned upon obedience. You disobey, here's what happens. Habakkuk says you've disobeyed. You violated the terms of the covenant. And so as a result, God is going to punish you. And he's going to use the hated Babylonians to do it. The Babylonians are going to, are going to overtake you. And then if you read Habakkuk, Habakkuk prophesies, preaches against Babylon. God uses Babylon, and then God punishes Babylon. So that's part of his sovereign plan, and yet Babylon in no way desires to and is no way pursuing God's moral will. And so the way I think of God's sovereign will and his moral will, you could think of it this way. God's sovereign will is God's plan. God's moral will is God's desire. God's moral will reflects what he approves. And he tells us what he disapproves. And he condemns what he disapproves. And so there are both aspects of of God's will. So, do we pursue, which one of those do we pursue? I mean, obviously we we can't pursue God's sovereign will, can we? (laughs) So this will keep you from getting wigged out. I mean, God's sovereign will should just keep you from getting wigged out. I could just leave it at that. One, that's the whole purpose of God telling us, I have a sovereign plan and it's all going to work out exactly the way I intended for us not to wig out. I mean, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry, I've got it under control. But you don't need to look at your credit card numbers and go, I got 16 digits there, and I cannot believe three of them are 666. Or there are three sixes in there equally spaced out. There must be a message in that. Or the person I was following today on my way to work has a driver's license with three six, license plate with three sixes in it. The world is coming to an end. And I see Christians do this kind of stuff all the time. They're looking for God's sovereign will to be carried out, and they're warning people, think about this. we got to keep this from happening. Now, no pun intended, but good luck with that. Guess what? (laughs) What the book of Revelation says is going to happen is going to happen. It's going to happen exactly on God's timetable. Am I worried in the least about the mark of the beast or 666? No. As a matter of fact, the entire reason that's given to us is so that we don't worry. So that we know that God has it under control and it is all moving exactly according to his timetable. 
So if you understand there's God's sovereign will, then you won't have to chase down stuff that's related to his sovereign will as if somehow you need to keep it from happening. You know, we need to keep the Antichrist and the ten-nation confederation of the European common market. Anybody remember all that stuff? I mean, if you've ever been exposed to this stuff, yikes. So the European common market at one time, as it used to be called when I was a young person, at one time had ten, ten nations in it. And everybody was absolutely sure that this is the ten-nation confederation that will be the restored Roman Empire of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Well, now it's got something like 28 nations in it. So now we got horns coming out of the beast that the book of Revelation knows nothing about. Okay? Or the bear coming over the mountain that will come from the north to attack Israel. Jack Van Impe was certain for years... And not just Jack Van Impey, all the prophecy monger people who've made a living scaring people. It's happening, it's coming, here are the signs, and they've been doing this for decades. And the bear coming over the mountain is communism. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at Jack Van Impey Ministries in Royal Oak, Michigan in 1989 when the Berlin Wall is falling down. And communism is falling all over the world. Well, now what is it? Now, there is going to be an attack from the north. That's what the Bible tells us in the last days from Israel. And God does not tell... You cannot take what's happening today. You cannot do that and accurately say it's communism or it's Russia or who it is. You can say that attack is going to come from that part of the world. That would be accurate. But you know what? I don't know who's going to be in charge in that part of the world at the time this happens. Do you? And so we look at today's events and we think that we've got to be aware of that and we've got to be wigged out about it and we've got to somehow keep it from happening. I'm not looking to keep it from happening. Surely come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I am simply comforted by the fact that God has a sovereign plan. And that's why he's told us this. So there's his sovereign plan. What we have to pursue is his moral will, God's desire, what he wants to see happen. And that's what you have in passages like 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. God is not willing that any should perish. That's an expression of God's desire, God's moral will. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's an expression of God's moral will. But in God's sovereign plan, indeed people do perish. Indeed people Wicked people do die. And so keep those straight in your mind and pursue the moral will of God as given to us in Scripture. And all of that is in God's sovereign plan. That's, that's happening over there. Completely outside God's moral will. And don't tell whoever did it that I said that, all right? Take a look at page 7. So the scriptures are an expression of God's will, and they're a complete expression of God's will. So the scriptures cover every issue that you face and that I face, either directly or indirectly. Some of them directly. They tell us what to do directly 
in certain situations, or they tell us very directly certain things that we could never do. But then, most often, they cover issues for us indirectly by expressing what God is like, expressing His moral will, what He condones and what He condemns in the narratives in Scripture that, in turn, we're to apply to our, situ- to our situations. And so Cornelius Van Til says this in the italicized quote there. We do not mean that the Bible speaks of football games or atoms, etc., directly. We do mean it speaks of everything directly or indirectly. It tells us not only of the Christ and His work, but it also tells us who God is and whence the universe has come. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. Moreover, the information on these subjects is woven into an inextricable whole. It's only if you reject the Bible as the Word of God that you can separate its so-called religious and moral instruction from what it says, for example, about the physical universe. And so Van Til is saying rightly that you don't buy into the idea that, hey, the Bible is not a science textbook, therefore it doesn't affirm true facts about the physical universe. It's true it's not a science textbook. But it's not true that it fails to teach accurate information about the physical universe, about the origin of the world as having been created by God in six 24-hour days as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And so the Bible is not just about spiritual matters. It's not just about religious matters. It teaches history. It teaches a philosophy of history. It teaches uh, on scientific issues and a way to view science. The scriptures give us a complete picture of what we need to understand either directly in precept or indirectly in principle, which leads to a second conclusion. The scriptures are sufficient, the sufficiency of scripture. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which we have quoted on the previous page, bottom of page 6, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, there's your, there's your sufficiency part. So God has given us all that we need for every, every good work. So that means that If science tells you something contrary to what God has said, who's wrong? Well, it's supposed to be science. It's supposed to be the right answer. If psychology tells you something contrary to what God says, guess who's wrong? Now now listen, dear friends. I know this gets hard because there are things we want to believe about ourselves, about our children, that secular isms teach us. But if we are people of the book and we want to carry out God's moral will, then we have to compare every proposition that we're presented with. No matter who makes it, we compare that to what God says. And then we make a determination in favor of what God says, even if it's unpopular. So, Much of, not all of, of course, but much of what secular psychology, for instance, teaches us is contrary to Scripture. 
And it tells us that the sole reason, a number of the secular theories, psychological theories, tell us that the sole reason, that's important, the sole reason that we do what we do is because of socialization. It's because of our upbringing. And so you all are familiar at it. If you're going to get it straight, you've got to dig into your past. You've got to get your past straightened out. You've got to get your, your mom and dad and your grandparents straightened out. You've got to forgive them. They don't even know they did anything wrong, but you've got to forgive them, says secular psychology. Now, no one should say that your upbringing is not a major factor in your development. Of course it is. The Bible teaches that. And the Bible, that's why the Bible tells parents to, to, to be so careful in the way we parent our children because the environment in which they come up is so very important. And choosing your friends, the book of Proverbs says, is so very important because the people around you shape you. So no one should say that that's not a factor. It is a factor. It's not the sole factor. There is nurture, but there is also nature. And the Bible says we come into this world with a nature and a natural bent. And our natural bent is sinful. And so what nurture does is it gives us environments in which our nature is exposed, is expressed. It doesn't create what's there. It causes to be exposed, to flourish what is already there. And so if you go to a counselor and they tell you your sinful behavior is not your fault because of someone or something outside of yourself, they're saying something contrary to Scripture. And I know we want to adopt the it's not my fault. I do too. We all do. But God tells us, you came into this world, Ken Brown, in rebellion against me. And now you are put in situations that I have sovereignly placed you in, in which your nature is going to express itself. The people who have sinned against us are responsible before God for having done that. And we are responsible before God for how we react, for how we respond to the situations in which he has placed us. That's what the Bible teaches. That's how we need to see ourselves. That's how we need to see our children. And I'm simply giving that as an example to say, this is how the Bible provides our worldview rather than the culture and the secular culture at that providing our worldview. And so there is the nature of Scripture, and then there is the nature of, of man. The nature of Scripture flows from the fact that God's the Creator, the necessity of revelation, of Him making known who He is, who we are, why He's placed us here. Thankfully, He's given us that information in Scripture, without error, complete, sufficient, as an expression of His will. But then, as another implication, a footnote of creation, there is the nature of man. And I say here on page 7, the fact of creation means that we are all creatures of the same Creator, and therefore a few things flow from that. Now you could have a whole bunch. Here's, here's just a way of thinking, just to give you examples. If that's true, 
If there is one creator and all humanity has come from that same creator and that same then first two parents, if that's true, and it is, then it means all humanity is related. Contrast this understanding of man's relation to man with that of the evolutionist and survival of the fittest. You see, these are two competing worldviews. We, we actually have a reason and a foundation in our worldview to not be racist because we're all related. The evolutionist has no such thing. But the Bible teaches this very ex- quite explicitly. Take your Bible and look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. So Paul, before philosophers in Athens, Greece, he makes an authoritative proclamation to them. He says, what you worship in ignorance, I am now going to authoritatively proclaim to you. And then he begins to talk to them in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Now notice what verse 26 tells us. From one man he made every nation of men. We are, every last one of us, related from a biblical worldview standpoint. Distant relations, to be sure, but all related. And so how is it then that Christians have come to distort what God teaches over centuries? And there has been a racist strain in Christianity, and not just in Christianity, in circles that we're identified with, as I talked about a few months ago. A biblical worldview says that all humanity is, is related. And the writers of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson, understood this. So he said all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He understood it, even if he didn't practice it. We all know the history, the history there. And so the Bible teaches as one implication of creation that the nature of man is such that we are all from one human family. We are all related. And so I'm going to move on to the next point and we'll be done. But I just want to say, dear friends, lose, lose your racist tendencies. Repent of your racist tendencies. It is contrary to what God says. Is contrary to Scripture. And I, 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 as much as I am able, will not tolerate that in our church. Now, when I say as much as I'm able, obviously I'm not the thought police, but I will tell you, if I hear people in our church make racist comments, those will be challenged because they're contrary to what God says. And if you have fostered those, 
then we need to repent and align our thinking with what God says. All humanity is related and all humanity is dependent. This is another now implication of the fact that God has, is the creator. We are the creature. He therefore owns us. He owns the world and everything he made. If all of that is true, then that means we're, we're dependent. And we are dependent on him for the resources that we have. And the resources we have aren't ours. Now, am I right that all of that follows from the fact that God's the creator? If God's the creator, then God is the owner. And if God is the owner, I'm not. Then what am I? I'm a manager. That's the word steward. And I manage a portion of what belongs to God. So God has given me, he's given you, a portion of what belongs to him to use for his purposes. Now, what are those resources that God owns? It'd be a lot quicker to just think about the resources God doesn't own. So what resources does God not own? Right? So he owns all material resources, but he also owns the resource of time. Did you know that God created time? That, you know, God is eternal. And God created time. He owns time. <laughs> he owns your time. He owns my time. That's another of the resources that belong to him. And that's why he says, Psalm number 90, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So he owns the material resources they belong to him. He owns time as a resource as well. He gives you a, 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 a slot of time. You don't know how much, you just know it ain't long. And he says, this is what I want you to do with it. It belongs to me that time that you're frittering away on your stuff. You're supposed to be using it for my stuff. And then thirdly, he owns the talent that you have. So you, you hear us say it, treasure, time, talent. These are all resources that belong to God. And those are talents that belong to Him that He gave to you. He gave natural abilities to you. He gave abilities that you acquired by the circumstances in which He sovereignly placed you and providentially has cultivated in your life. And those talents are to be used for his purpose as well as a steward, a manager of our treasure, our time, and our talent. And then last, it means God controls the world. It's his world. He made it. He made it with obvious design. And so there is an argument for the existence of God called the teleological argument for the existence of God. And the idea is telos simply means an end, a goal. And God, and God made the world in a way that has the evidence of a goal in mind, that this is not haphazard, that he actually has purpose in mind. So this God who created also has an end game. And he is controlling his world to ensure that the end game is realized. And that's why the book of Revelation can tell us what the end game is going to look like. And everything in between, God sovereignly controls so that it comes out the way God has designed. 
All of these are footnotes of creation and help us see the world through the lens of a biblical worldview. Now, next week, we'll begin to look at disorientation and what the fall looks like and what the Bible teaches about the entrance of sin and how it's affected us and how we should see ourselves and others and the solution to sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to settle our minds and focus our minds upon you and your world. It is your world, and we are yours. And all people and all things are yours, whether they acknowledge it, whether we like it or not. So all things are yours and are to be used for your purposes. Lord, you have done a work in us such that we have given up our rebelling and we gladly submit to your sovereign rule over us. Lord, help us to be people who not merely say that but live that way. Help us to live that way this afternoon and this week. As things come into our lives, help us to be able to see them through the lens of a biblical view of the world. That my God is in control. That even when things happen outside your moral will, you still sovereignly overrule those things such that you use them for your ultimately good ends, for our ultimate good and for your glory. Help us to practice that every moment of every day, Lord God. We need your grace to do that because we are prone to forget. Help us, Lord, as we do that. Help us to be lights that shine in darkness because this is indeed rare. That we can go through life in a fallen world and we can see it from a radically different perspective and that people see that and they ask about a reason for the hope that is within us. I pray that that would happen in the lives of some of us this very week. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back next Lord's Day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.